Good morning, church family. It's good. We're awake. I like it. I was worried I wouldn't be awake, but that's because we had a crazy first birthday party yesterday for Jesse, and I don't think she's awake right now because she didn't sleep at all yesterday. So in order to spare you her crying, uh, she's not in the room at the moment. Um, hey, here's, here's a question, and when I lay this question out to us this morning, I, I want to be clear. This question is not the, the, the primary focus of our passage this morning, but it, but it is where we're going to ultimately get to when we get to the end of the sermon. And it's important because this is one of those passages that for you and I as believers, likely if you've been in the church for a long time, you've heard this passage. It's not going to be new. It's one of those passages that we can easily, it's like a battle cry of the Christian faith. But because of our culture and our background, it is possible for us to let it pass right over and, and for one reason or another, not let it really hit our heart and spirit where it ought. So here's the question. How do you know that your life is blessed by God? Or phrase another way, how do you know that God's favor is resting upon your life? What are, what are the things you look to? If you had to make a list, here's why I know God's favor is on my life. What would be the evidences you would point to? Now, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to dive right in. We've got a lot of ground to cover, though it's only a few verses. So we're going to be back in Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to pick up in verse 27, Philippians 1, 27. Now, let me remind us, Paul's riding the church in Philippi. He's under house arrest, daily chained to a, a Roman Praetorian guard, the elite of the elite, and he's writing this letter. He's been under arrest for four years at this point. He spent four years in captivity. He is there in Rome, and he has a first-hand window and picture into the capital, the culture, the policies, anything that's going to affect the entire empire. Paul is there at the beginning seeing it firsthand. Now, why is that important for Philippi? Because Philippi is not just a city in the empire. It's a Roman colony. Remember? Remember it was, it was the city that sat on the battlefield where, where Caesar Augustus, before he was Caesar Augustus, and Mark Antony defeated the, the assassins of Julius Caesar. And because of that place, they granted the city of Philippi and all of the army veterans who established it, they granted it the right of Roman citizenship. It is literally a mini Rome the layout of its streets reflective of Rome, the style of its buildings and architecture reflective of Rome, its schools reflected of Rome. Everything that Rome is from policy to worship to culture is what Philippi is. And not only that, all the rights of a citizen of Rome, so if you are a Philippian, you possess those rights. And so as Paul is sitting in the capital under house arrest, waiting to go before Caesar, seeing and watching the empire move, begin to move against Christianity, he knows, even though he's not there, that those movements here in Rome are coming if they're not already there and present in Philippi, which is why he's put such an effort into making sure the church in Philippi knows that the gospel is still progressing in spite of and even because of the suffering that is happening. And so this is where he comes to. He's finished telling the Philippians about his circumstances, his thoughts, and this is what he says, verse 27. 
only. Literally, this one thing above all, nothing else, this one thing. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I remain absent, that I will hear of you the things concerning you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving, contending together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed or terrified by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that from God. For to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. He turns his attention to, to, to instructing the Philippian church and what he says is only this one thing above all else and nothing else, this one thing, church, this one thing. And, and my Bible says, conduct yourselves in a manner. If you've got a really, really, really old Bible, it will say, let your conversation and I just as you total aside, I never knew the word conversation originally had nothing to do with speaking. It had to do with how you live. Now, if you want to know where did it come together, I don't know. And that's not the point of the sermon, so don't ask. You can go do that research on your own if you love Webster. But he says, this one thing, conduct yourself. And that word conduct yourself literally is a word. It's really a word that means to live out the duties and responsibilities of your citizenship. Based on who you belong to, the rights and responsibilities that come with that citizenship, live them out. It is a unique word only used twice in all of Scripture, both times to the Philippian church. Why? Because they're the only church that Paul ever wrote who had Roman citizenship. Roman citizenship, just because you lived in the Roman Empire did not mean you had Roman citizenship. Roman citizenship was valuable. You had to either be born literally of a Roman citizen in Rome or you had to be a member of, of a colony like Philippi or earn it or buy it. It was rare, it was not common, it was valuable. And it's hard for most of us in this room to imagine what it would be like to lack the things that you had as a citizen of Rome. Let me just, let me just read you the rights you had as a Roman citizen. You had the right to vote. You had the right to run for civil office. You had the right to make a legal contract. You had the right to own private property. You had the right to have an actual marriage. You have the right to immunity from some taxes. You had the right to sue. You had the right to a legal trial. You had the right to appeal to a higher court. You were protected from torture, whipping, and crucifixion. If you had a death sentence, it was reduced to voluntary exile. You could voluntarily choose to serve in the military, and you had the right to directly appeal to Caesar. And if you weren't a citizen, you didn't have any of those rights, which is what the majority of the first century world was. So the, the, the Philippians have this unbelievable civic pride and patriotism because they have these rights as a citizen. They know what it means because they are one of the few people in the empire to understand what it means to have a citizenship placed upon them with rights and responsibilities. And church family, you and I know this too. There was a time where to be an American meant certain rights and responsibilities and patriotism. And, and some still feel that way. Some don't feel that way. But we understand from American. There's, if you're a Texan, oh, you feel all sorts of civic pride. You're a Texan. And then if you're a member of the cult of Texas A&M University, you understand. 
And I say that as one who grew up there, but right, I mean, it's a joke. B- back in Aggie, it is. It, if you, what is it? Every good Aggie does not lie, steep, or chill, or tolerate those who do. There, for every one of our citizenships, there are a sense of right responsibilities and expectations. And what Paul is saying here to the church in Philippi is he wants them to understand that the citizenship that should be binding on their lives is the citizenship of heaven their actual citizenship, that there are rights and responsibilities as a citizen of heaven. And just as the, 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 the colony of Philippi is to be a mini Rome in a far off place reflective of its homeland, so the church is to be a body of believers, a family in a far off place reflective of the culture and rights and responsibilities of her homeland, heaven. And so church family, what what does this mean right off the bat for us? We've been walking through chapter one of Philippians asking ourselves, what does it mean to be a gospel-driven church? If we're gonna be a gospel-driven church, if you and I are going to be gospel-driven people, then we must be people who live out our citizenship of heaven worthy of the gospel that we both believe and proclaim. That's what he says, live out your citizenship worthy. Not just live it out, but worthy in a way that's fitting for it. Meaning that as a citizen of heaven, there is no room for anything goes mentalities. Anything does not go. There's a manner of living that's suitable for a follower of Christ. There's a manner of living that is not suitable as a follower of Christ. There is a manner of living that is reflective of a citizenship in heaven. There is a manner of living that is not reflective of a citizenship of heaven. These are political words, and they're used to invoke the reality of the kingdom of God because church family understand, those of us in this room, we are not a country club. We are ambassadors of the king of the universe. We are sons and daughters of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are filled with the Spirit, and our citizenship is in heaven. We are testifying to the new heaven and new earth, the kingdom that is coming, and that citizenship is binding over and above any other citizenship you and I may have tethered to this world. Period. And I don't say that. I'm not knocking being an American. I'm grateful and proud to be an American. I'm not knocking being a Texan. I'm grateful and proud to be a Texan. And I don't care if you're an Aggie, a Longhorn, a Bear, a Raider, or whatever other school you want to toss in there. None of those things ever, let me rephrase it this way, all of those things must bow to the citizenship I have in heaven. So just what does it mean? I just, I just, this, is not a, this is not an exhaustive list, but if citizenship carries with it rights and responsibilities, let me just give you some of the rights and responsibilities we have as citizens of heaven. Rights. We have the right to be children of God. John 1.12. We have the rights as children, not just to be children, but be, to be a children adopted. Romans 8, in the, in the spirit within us, cries out, Abba, Father, Papa. And by the way, in Rome, if you are an adopted child... Under no circumstance could you ever be disowned by your parents. We have the right to boldly approach the throne of Jesus, Hebrews 4. We have the right to have a great high priest and mediator, and we have the right to find from him grace and mercy in time of need. Romans 8 says we have the right to an intercessor, the Holy Spirit, who prays with us 
with passion too deep for words. And not only does he pray, but then it says Jesus prays for us. Second Corinthians 1 says we have a right to all the promises of God in Christ. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. We have the right to eternal life. We have unbelievable rights. We also have weighty responsibilities. First Peter 1 says, be holy as I am holy. We have a call to live out the holiness God has given us. We'll see in Philippians in a few weeks, we have a call to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We have a responsibility, according to Ephesians 4, to be submitted to the Spirit so that as God's household, as God's people, walking in a worthy of our calling, we would be unified by the Spirit in the bond of peace. We see also in Ephesians 4, we have the responsibility to each one of us be equipped and built up to do ministry God has for us us as an individual to do. First Corinthians chapter 12 says, you and I have a responsibility to build up each other with the spiritual gifts God gives us. Galatians 6 says, we have a responsibility to bear with one another's burdens. And Matthew 28 says, we have a responsibility, every one of us in this room, to go to the ends of the earth and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are rights and responsibilities that you and I have as citizens of heaven, and we are called to live them out worthy of the gospel. So here's the question, church family. What citizenship do you and I deem to be of greater worth? Is the citizenship that more constrains and drives my life my American citizenship, my Texan citizenship, my vocational citizenship, my family citizenship, or is it the citizenship you and I have that was purchased with the precious blood of Christ? What is it? What citizenship is it that drives us? And understand, our answer to that question will reveal whether or not at its heart we believe we're greater than Christ. Because if Christ is greater, then all that matters is the citizenship he gives. So this is the call. Okay, now understand. This is, if you want to say, what's the point today? What's the point is, if you and I are going to be a gospel-driven people, we must live as citizens worthy of the gospel. And actually, this command will be the central command for the next several weeks as we continue walking through Philippians. Because what's going to happen now is Paul's going to give us today uh, four different ways of how specifically we live out a citizenship worthy of heaven. So look back with me at the text. Look what he says. Whether I come and see you or remain absent, what is it? That I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. Standing firm in one spirit. That you are firmly committed in conviction and belief. It's, it's this imagery of a soldier who is determined to be unmovable no matter how violent around him the battle rages. No matter how hard the, the opposition pushes in on him. It's literally the picture of the soldiers they unearthed in Pompeii. Frozen in time, covered in ash from the volcano, but unmoved from their guard posts means to be unmovable, and, it's, and it's, it's to be continual in our lives, but we're to be standing firm. It means there is a truth that you and I have been stood in, that we are standing in, and under no circumstances are we to retreat or give up ground in that truth. But it's not just standing firm. Did you see standing firm in one spirit? Now, if you do some digging, there's a little bit of day in one spirit. Is that the idea, like we probably read it, one spirit, one purpose, one common? Or is that one spirit, meaning we are to stand firm in one spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit? So it means. It means you and I are to stand firm in the truth of one purpose, unified by the Holy Spirit. 
Our standing firm, it's not just I stand firm, it's we stand firm. We lock arms together and we stand firm. And you know what locks our arms together and unifies us? It's the Holy Spirit. See, Hebrew, uh, Ephesians 4 is clear, church family. Unity in the church does not come from you and I's effort to be unified. That would be, at best, conformity. Unity, it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, comes from the Holy Spirit. So you don't want to know what we can do to be unified? Each one of us can submit and surrender to the Holy Spirit and truth. And if every one of us as an individual will submit and yield to the Holy Spirit and truth, guess what the Holy Spirit will produce? Unity. Unshakable unity. To stand firm together in our position in Christ as ambassadors proclaiming truth, to stand firm in one spirit. So let's just be clear. You and I cannot be unified if we are not as individuals and then corporately as a church submitted to the Holy Spirit. Okay? So let me just give you practical what this means. It means you and I have to believe what God says about himself and about himself in us is true, period. It means that you and I have to submit to the Holy Spirit by submitting every one of our thoughts, every one of our beliefs, every one of our actions, not just to the ethereal feeling we want to say is the Holy Spirit, but to the very written word the Holy Spirit put down for us. To be submitted to the Holy Spirit means we're submitted to the word. Because by the way, church family, the Holy Spirit will never, ever lead you or I in a way that is contradictory to the word he wrote. This means if there's an area in our lives where we're not submitted to the Holy Spirit, to his leading, it means today we need to repent. If we've wronged a brother, if we need to go set it right. If God's laid it on our heart, if the Spirit's moved us to encourage someone, we need to get up and go do it. We must be submitted to the Spirit. Not only be submitted to the Spirit, but as in submission to the Spirit, we cannot move a single foot from anything given in the Word of God. Church family, we got to know what he says. We got to know how he says it. We got to know why he says it, because it's about what he says, not what you and I think about what he says. It's about what he says, not what you and I feel about what he says. It's about what he says and not what the world feels about he says. We cannot move any ground back on what God has said clearly, even though there is a world that says, you are a fool, you are a bigot, you are rude, you are, I don't, it doesn't matter what those things are said, we've been given truth, and we are to stand firm, convicted in it. Which just as a side note, it's really hard to stand firm in truth when you and I don't know truth. And you want to know what one of the greatest problems with the American church is today? It's our biblical illiteracy. We don't actually know what God actually says. We don't actually know what he's actually written. It's why all of a sudden we, we are so captivated by false teachers who, by the way, let me remind you this little tidbit. I'm giving you all sorts of tidbits today. 99.9% truth is always 100% a lie. So it doesn't matter if somebody's up there who's eloquent, who's, who's smooth, who knows how to talk, who knows how to communicate and says 99.9% truth. 99.9% truth still isn't truth. But do you know how you and I are going to be able to discern that? By actually knowing what's true. 
But unfortunately, so many of us, we, we give so little time to actually reading our Bibles, to studying our Bibles, to knowing our Bibles, to being equipped, or when, when goodness, when, when the pastor or minister says, hey, we're going to do a series on something theological, ah, that's, that, doesn't tell me how to, that doesn't tell me how to wash my kids before bedtime. I don't want anything to do with that. Well, look, God cares about washing your kids before bedtime, and he cares about you understanding what's true. In fact, understanding what's true is actually going to have impact on that. So if we're going to stand firm, we've got to know what's true. It also means this, church family, if we're going to stand firm, we have to come to the body of Christ for God's glory and his purposes. It means when we come together as a church family, our purpose and our mission is that which Christ gives us. We must come with an attitude that says to God be the glory, may the body be built up, may the lost be reached, and not with an attitude that says what can I get out of it for me? Someone may walk away today and say, you know what, I appreciate pastor, but... I don't really get anything out of that sermon. That's okay, because you're not the only person God's trying to reach today. And you and I too often can come to church with a consumeristic mentality that says, my preferences, I can't believe pastor wore a vest and not a jacket. (laughs) I can't believe our carpet is some kind of tan brownish burgundy and it's not church red or church teal. I can't believe the music was this decibel level versus this decibel level. I can't believe it's traditional or it's contemporary. We cannot allow personal preference and style choices to dictate. We cannot allow personal ambition. We looked at that several weeks ago, even through ministry. We can't allow our poor assumptions about each other. Church family, there are so many things today that I watch the enemy getting, getting the, the true, real church, churches that believe the real gospel, that preach the real Jesus, that I know believe truth. But there are so many secondary things that we are now fighting each other over. Meanwhile, there is a world walking straight towards hell and actively growing in opposition. And God's call to live out citizenships worthy means we got to stand firm as one united front in the Holy Spirit. But it's not just that. It's also going to mean this. Look back with me. With one mind, literally with one soul, with one life, striving together, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Now all of a sudden we move from military language to athletic language. It's the picture of a team of athletes moving in one accord with one purpose. It's, think of it like this. It's like when you look up and you see a flock of geese in the sky and, and they move with almost one mind. That's what we're talking about, contending. It's this this struggle, this battle, contending with one mind, with one soul. It's as if the church is acting as many individuals, but one body, one person. For what? The faith of the gospel. If standing firm means we are standing firm, unified in truth, such that we will not retreat on that which is true, then this now gives us our marching orders, not on not retreating, but what it is we're actually standing and fighting for. And that is the faith of the gospel. That is the gospel message. That is the truth that you and I are made in the image of God. But because of sin, we're born out of relationship with God and accountable for everything that sin brings. And God, who's a just God, will pour out just wrath upon that sin. The God who is a gracious, merciful God sent his one and only son to be the sacrifice of 
on you and I's behalf. That any who might believe, who might faith in him, would not perish but have everlasting life and be restored and reconciled to the relationship that God made us. This message is not just the foundation of our faith. It is our faith, and, and we don't move from it. We move deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into it for all eternity. And this is the battle we face. Listen, church family, we need to be clear. Be clear. There are absolutely things we have to stand up for and deal with in culture. I am not some young, hippy-drippy millennial who says you can't stand up and, and cause a wake. That's not. But we also need to be clear that our fight is not for reclaiming culture. It's for the faith of the gospel. It's for men and women hearing the good news of Christ and responding whether we are safe or whether we are persecuted. And let me just remind us, church family, one, one, there's no gospel to preach if the line's not held on truth. So the standing firm unified is important. We've got to start there. But then we have to march out for the gospel of Christ. Listen to this. I've shared some of these, but i got more expanded, so just walk with me. There's 70,000 people living in Pflugerville. A real liberal guesstimate says there's about 8,000 believers. That means there's 62,000 people in the city around us who don't know Jesus Christ. That's nine out of every ten people you meet. If we want to expand a little bit, let's go up to our northern neighbor, Hutto. There's about 31,000 people living there. There's only probably about 4,000 who know the Lord. That's 27,000 lost. Let's look at the Austrian metro area. There's almost 2,300,000 uh, 2, people, but only about 250,000 believers. That means there's 2,270,303 men and women in the Austin area who don't know Jesus Christ. There's 350 million men and women, boys and girls living in America, but likely only about 99 million believers, which means there's 261,100,000 who are lost. There's over 7 billion people living in the world, and only 2.3, that's 30%, claim some form of Christianity. When I say form, that doesn't necessarily mean that they truly believe the actual gospel. It means they claim some form of church. But even if you go by that, that means there's 4.7 billion people in the world who do not know Jesus Christ. 1.6 of them have never even heard the gospel message once. But if all those stats overwhelm you, church family, and by the way, in all of those stats, let's just be clear. To live citizens worthy of heaven means God has called us to be a part of what he wants to do about that. God has called us to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. God has called us to be his witnesses in Pflugerville, Hutto, Manor, Elgin, in the greater Austin area, in Texas, in the United States, in the Western Hemisphere, and all the way to every corner of the world. God has called all of us to that. Every one of us. And every one of us has a part to play to, to the child today, the kids. Every one of you who's in grade school, you have a part to play. All the students, you have a part to play in this. All the adults, you, we have a part to play in this. But let me make it simpler than all those numbers. There's one. All of us have one neighbor or one family member or one coworker, one teammate, one friend. All of us know one real living, breathing soul that Jesus poured his blood out for in love. Are we praying for the open door and are we looking to contend for the faith of the gospel in that one person's life? It starts with 
one. Church family, if we're going to be a gospel-driven people whose citizenship is lived worthy of heaven, then it means we are going to strive side by side for the sake of the gospel. But it's also going to mean this, because as we stand firm, unified by the Holy Spirit, as we contend side by side for the faith of the gospel, what's going to happen is we're going to discover we live in a world that opposes that reality. And so it's going to mean you and I must not be terrified by those who oppose the gospel. Look with me at the text. In no way alarmed by your opponents. Now that word alarmed, it's an interesting little word. It's literally the picture. It's a word that means terrified. And the picture is of, is of horses on the battlefield getting spooked and startled and running around and creating total chaos and disarray. It means for you and I, church family, we cannot be surprised that there are opponents. Scripture's clear about that. In fact, Jesus is emphatic, the world will hate you because it hated me. That's pretty strong language. There's opponents, there will be those who come against, and that word opponents there, it's not exclusive to anyone. That word, can, that word in Scripture is used of Satan himself, of demonic powers, of physical flesh and blood people who just oppose the person and message of Christ. You and I face real opposition. We face real opposition. The believers in Philippi, I remind you, when Paul first came into Philippi and preached the gospel, a mob stirred up and beat him. These believers would have seen it. They likely would have experienced it. As Paul's sitting in his prison, seeing the things in Rome moving, he knows these things are coming there. He knows what his brothers and sisters are going to face, and he writes to call them to encourage them. Church family, I don't know the future of history. We could be on the verge of a third great awakening, greater than anything the world's ever seen. We could be on the verge of a greater persecution than anything the world's ever seen. But we cannot allow our hearts to be filled with terror at the fact that there are those who oppose. Instead, as we, as we set our minds to Christ, instead as we return to Paul's emphasis, which is for the sake of Christ, and not focus on who oppose, as we focus there, as we put our mind to believe what Scripture says, when we look at the things like last week, the ways the Holy Spirit will sustain us, will, will provide for us to be able to walk, as we walk in those ways, we will possess the ability to face that opposition unafraid. Doesn't mean you have to, we have to want it. Doesn't mean we have to go looking for it. But think about even examples in Scripture. There's Stephen being stoned, calm, his face like that of an angel. There's Paul in his last trial in, in 2 Timothy where he says, no one stood with me, but he said, but Jesus stood with me. You think about Peter being delivered from prison the night before his execution. Sometimes God delivers us by bringing us home. Sometimes God delivers us. The reality there is opposition, but there is the ability in Christ to walk through it unterrified. And when that happens, look what it says. It's a sign of their destruction, but of salvation for you. It's a sign of our salvation because it's, it's our salvation being lived out through us. It's a sign of their destruction they may or may not see that sign. They may not see it till later. They may in their own sin suppress the reality of what they're seeing. But make no mistake, when the world watches us be opposed by Christ and do so unafraid but joyously keeping our eyes on Christ, the witness cannot be ignored. I remember reading a story of a pastor in a very 
heavily persecuted country, and soldiers showed up one day. They knew they couldn't touch the pastor because of his reputation in the community, but they knew they could touch his family. So they show up at the house, they bring the wife and the kids out, and they hold them at gunpoint. Tell the pastor, renounce Christ, we'll let your family live. Don't renounce Christ, we will kill them. The wife looked at the pastor and said, you know who we belong to. Do not deny. And the pastor didn't, and the soldiers killed his family. And then the several days that follow, every one of those soldiers came back to the pastor and said, I have to know what you know. Every one of those soldiers came to faith in Christ. And then a month later, every one of those soldiers was home with Christ. See, part of the tie, though, to being able to not be alarmed by our opponents, which when that happens, serves as a witness both of God's wrath upon sin, but of the salvation that he is in our lives and that from him, part of our ability to do that is going to demand a mindset change, which means this. Look at the last part. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake. Part of our ability to be able to walk and face opponents is gonna be tied to a mindset change that all of a sudden doesn't see suffering as a sign of what's going wrong. Look what it says, for you it has been granted. That word has been granted. It's literally a word that means a gift of grace. It's a gift you give someone as a sign of goodwill and favor. Literally, you could read it this way. God has granted you the high privilege of suffering for Christ. And this is the surest sign that he looks upon you and your life with favor. Why is that? That seems crazy. Why is that? Because what is God's purpose in our life? Romans 8, 28, to conform us to the image of Christ, to conform us to the image of the suffering servant, to conform us to the image of one who came not to be served, but to serve. And what? Lay his life down as a ransom for many. To conform us to the image of one that we'll see in two weeks, humbled himself and took on the form of a servant, even to the point of death. Why? Because if we're really going to be like Christ, then we must share in his sufferings. And what we mean here by suffering, we don't mean the times you suffer for doing something foolhardy. Like the guy who one time at my former church tried to jump up and hit a ledge with his head on a stairwell, and he, he succeeded and proceeded to knock himself out and fall down the stairs unconscious. That's not the suffering we're talking about. It says it has been granted to you for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. We're talking about that loneliness, students or adults, that you feel when you're at home alone because you're unwilling to go out and party and engage in reveling. We're talking about that time, the, the, the stares and the glares you get at the office or, or get from other families who think you're crazy because you choose to value the values of Christ over the values of the world. We're talking about when you are faithfully and rightly in love and truth and gentleness and kindness speaking the truth and you are attacked and there is a, a world that seeks to, to silence and muzzle the truth that you are Speaking, whether that comes from a coworker or a neighbor or whether that climbs all the way up the ladder to the government. Now listen, what this passage does not mean, church, I want to be clear. This passage does not say that suffering is good. 
It also doesn't say that you and I have to enjoy suffering or like it. It doesn't say that we cannot cry at suffering. It doesn't say that we cannot struggle. We know Paul struggled. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1 that his suffering was so great it caused him to despair even of life itself. Or in the words of my grandfather, I can be grateful for it, but I don't have to appreciate it. So suffering is not good in and of itself. It's the result of living in a sinful and broken world. It flows from the evil. It's in our present reality. What is good is walking with Jesus. What is good is sharing in his sufferings on his behalf when God leads us to the valley of the shadow of death for his glory. And church family, if we're honest, this flies in the face of the way we usually think. We're too much like Job's friends who when we see evil and pain, sorrow, suffering, when we all of a sudden set our face to turn and follow Christ and hardship after hardship comes seeking to keep us from following Christ or comes against us for following Christ, we go, what's wrong? What's, God, where are you? Why are you hanging me out? Yet remember this because of the athletic imagery here. The athletes who are most favored are also the ones who experience the most pain because they're actually on the field playing contending side by side. And Paul says, it's been granted to you to suffer for Christ's sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me. You saw me beaten. You saw the pain you now hear in me, and you're experiencing it yourselves. Church family, we need to be clear. Suffering is a part of being gospel-driven. Doesn't mean we should seek it out. Doesn't mean we, should li- we have to like it and love it. Woo, praise the Lord, I'm doing some more suffering today. <laughs> but it does mean we receive it as a gift of grace and divine favor when it's for the sake of Christ. It means we should suffer in favor rather than doubt. It means we should receive sufferings for Christ's sake and know the intimacy of sharing his sufferings with him. Did you notice that whenever Paul, whenever Jesus interrupts Saul, who became Paul's life, he doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my children? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When you and I suffer for the sake of Christ, there is an intimacy because it is us suffering with Jesus. It is Jesus suffering with us So we have to ask this question. If we look at our lives, do we see the favor of God or do we see a lot of places where we have cut out potential suffering by closing our mouths and silencing our witness? Because I'm willing to bet and I hope that most of us in this room would say, you know, the prosperity gospel is not true. Jesus never promises you personal health, wealth, and prosperity. But I'm afraid that many of us still process life that way. It hit me not too long ago. We always say, man, God has blessed America more than any other nation. Well, why do we say that? Because America's wealthy, powerful, healthy? Is that not just corporate prosperity gospel? You see, there is something deep that It's hard. This is a hard passage. This is a hard reality to go, wait a minute. A sign of God's favor on my life is that he would allow me to suffer for the sake and glory of Christ. Yes. Yes. And so many have gone before us. I'm willing to bet no one in the room knows a man by the name of Obadiah Holmes. He lived in the 1600s and in 1651, 
Obadiah Holmes and several others went up to Massachusetts to preach the true gospel because the churches in Massachusetts were not preaching a gospel of salvation by grace through faith, that repentance and faith. They're arrested for what they're preaching, for what they were preaching and put through a sham trial. They were given a sentence of 30 strikes by whipping, which was literally a death sentence for preaching heresy. It was the same sentence given to those who commit sexual assault. Someone offered to pay his fine. He said, I will not pay the fine. I bless God that I am counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. So in September of that year, they took him out and each of the 30 strokes cut three different gashes through the skin. He had a total of 90 slices. It left him so raw, he survived, so raw and painful though he could not even lie down, but he had to rest on his knees and elbows for days. But listen to what he said. Listen to what he said. A man who would not back down but stood firm with others for the sake of the gospel, who contended side by side for the sake of the gospel, who was unafraid by the opposition but received from God the favor of suffering. Listen to what he says. As the man began to lay the strokes upon my back, I said to the people, though my flesh should fail, yet God will not fail. So it pleased the Lord to come in and fill my heart and tongue as a vessel full. And with audible voice, I broke forth, praying that the Lord would not lay this sin to their charge and telling the people that I found he, Jesus, did not fail me. And therefore now I should trust him forever who failed me not. For in truth, as the strokes fell upon me, I had such a spiritual manifestation of God's presence as I had never had before. And the outward pain was so removed from me that I could bear it, yea, and in a manner felt it not, although it was grievous. So Badiah Holmes was a man who stood, who, who stood firm in one spirit with other believers, contending side by side for the faith of the gospel and afraid by his opponents who was willing to receive. And what does he testify to you and I today? That the Lord will take care of us if we'll walk with him through it. Amen. Church family, the stakes are high. God has called you and I. The question is, will we live out our citizenship well? Will we leave this place? Will we exit into the mission field standing firm in one spirit? Will we be found contending for the faith of the gospel undeterred by opposition? Will we be found receptive in praising the Lord for the opportunity to suffer for his sake? Or will we be found silenced just enjoying each other's company like a good old-fashioned country club? Choices in front of us, church family. If we're going to be a gospel-driven church, may our answer be yes. Let's pray. Father, this is always a um, sobering and hard passage to preach because it's weighty and there's a lot to it. Father, my prayer is very, very simple this morning. As we see opposition arise, as we see culture worldwide turn more and more hostile to Christ in a way that, that honestly in our lifetimes we've not seen. We read about, but we've not seen. May we, as your family here at First Baptist Fleurville, may we walk well with you. And so, Lord, as you're stirring our hearts, if there's stuff any of us need to repent of, Lord, may we repent of it. If there's some of us in this room who we've been walking, living this passage out well, may you just encourage and fill our hearts, Holy Spirit. Father, if there's some of us who don't know you and, and we're sitting and going, man, I, 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 there, there's a tear in my heart because I, I don't really know Jesus. We're made a day be the salvation. If there's some who would say, hey, I need to be a part of this family. Lord, I don't know how you would call us to respond. Holy Spirit, you do. May our answer be 
yes. It's in your name I pray, Jesus.